Well, I'll start this morning with a bit of an apology. If you came in this morning and maybe you caught a bit of a funky whiff, you smelled something that wasn't quite right, that's our fault. It's not my fault, but it's our other two pastors' fault. I found out, I just found this out this morning, so I didn't know this to prepare you all, but uh, this week, our executive pastor, John, his dog got skunked twice. And then I found out that last night, Mark, who you just heard from, our, our pastor from Burlington, his dog got skunked at like 10, 10.30 last night. And here's what happens when your dog gets skunked. This has happened to our dog before. Um, it's not just that your dog stinks which is the first terrible thing. You know, you, maybe this, when my dog got stunk, all of a sudden, uh, one night we had, it was probably, is it this time of year? I don't know, is that what's, maybe, okay, it is. Um, but I remember we had our windows open, the cool air was coming in, and uh, all of a sudden we kind of smell, oh, smells like a skunk. And then we heard barking. And we're like, no! Oh! So we run out to the door, to the back door, pull the dog in, ah, oh, it's too late. He's already skunked, you already got the smell. Here's the problem, the smell does not just stick to the dog. The smell goes wherever the dog goes. Sometimes the smell gets on you. The smell, you know, smell goes in whatever room. So Mark was telling me this morning, he gets out of bed, he opens his, his bedroom door to go over to the rest of the house where the dog has been, and the smell is there like a punch in the face. It follows you around, right? You've had that experience. Now, that's not a great experience. It's not positive. But the smell thing actually does work both ways. It can be negative for a skunk. But have you ever been around somebody that wears a certain perfume or a certain cologne and you recognize their smell? It's a good smell, hopefully, that when they're in the room, you go, oh, that's so-and-so. I recommend. And even when they leave the room, sometimes you can smell that lingering perfume or the lingering cologne and, and hopefully it's a good thing. Or even if it's clothes that they've worn and that, you know, maybe your spouse or something, they've worn clothes and had that smell on them and then thrown them in the basket and you can smell and you go, oh, that reminds me of so-and-so. And, you know, when you're dating somebody and you're in love and all that, the feelings are going through and you grab their sweater or something, you that never happened to me. That'd be weird, right? Okay, I feel like this went a little weird. Let's back up. All that to say is, for good or for bad, sometimes those smells follow us wherever we go. I think that's true spiritually of us as well, that we are contagious in a sense. Can I read to you uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis? Uh, today I want to talk a little bit about our attitudes and our perspective. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. Christianity asserts that we are going on forever. Now there are a great many things that wouldn't be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 80 years or so. But I had better bother about if I am going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins, listen to this, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Isn't that amazing? So a couple of things that he says here. One is how important your character is because if we are meant to be eternal beings, that those things that are growing inside of us, that as he says, you know, in a few decades might not be a huge deal, but if it went on forever, would turn into a hell. But then what he says, when he says, and it starts with a grumbling mood. Can you imagine that? A grumble, 
a complaint, uh, this, this negative attitude that can be like a smell that follows us around. And not only is poison for us, but for the people around us. Now, I don't know if you've heard this. I know this doesn't happen here at Westside Church, but I have heard a rumor from other pastors that I know that there are some grumpy people in churches. Have you ever heard that? That there are people who complain about church. Could you imagine that? And complain about all sorts of things. Complain about the color of the wall or the carpet. Complain about the music. I'm beautiful, by the way, our team this morning and our sound people and everybody who's done that. Such a remarkable job. There's always something to complain about. Sure, clap for them. It's incredible. But music becomes an easy target. The service was too long. The service was too short. The preaching, there's always something about preaching. Sorry, I'm doing my best. The kids, they're too loud or there's not enough of them. But there can always be something to complain about. Complain, complain, complain. And actually, just like C.S. Lewis mentions, complaining and being that, that grumpy, grumbling person, there's a huge theme of that in the scriptures. That it's not some small little thing, that it is, it is this thing that grows inside of us and can poison an entire community. In fact, Jesus took a lot of complaints, and he took a lot of complaints from religious people. Everywhere he went, he had religious people complaining. They didn't like his theology, they didn't like his interpretation of scripture, they didn't like how they acted, they were jealous of his popularity, they didn't like his criticism of the religious establishment, I guess because they were the religious establishment, so that makes sense. They didn't like who he included which were women and people of different ethnicities and religious backgrounds, outsiders in their culture and their religious tradition, his own religious tradition. And they certainly did not like who he spent his time with. And so they grumbled and they complained and they opposed him. It is, I suppose, a pretty common human response. When we don't get what we want, when things aren't the way that we like them to be, we complain and we grumble. Today, I want to suggest that possibly uh, we need to make sure to be on guard against that grumbling spirit. And in fact, I want to talk about, uh, for those of us who might be grumpy, and by the way, when I say that, uh, I am often the grumpy person. I am often the grumpy church person, the person who notices the things that didn't go well or should have gone better or or whatever it might be. And so uh, if you feel that too, I'm with you. But what if, what if, As a church, as a community together, we could rather than grumbling and complaining pursue joy. Because that's the opposite. What would be the secret together as a church to pursuing a joyful time together? A joyful community, a joyful spirit that's not just in one of us, but that kind of reverberates through all of us. And that it's not just something that happens on a Sunday morning, but goes out into the world. So today, as we continue our series called The Mysteries of the Kingdom, I want to talk about the secret to pursuing joy, or at least one secret to pursuing joy. And I start by reading in Luke chapter 15. And uh, if you've been in church for a long time, you might have heard this parable. We're, We're diving into some of the Uh, these deeper truths that Jesus teaches through stories. And Luke 15 starts like this. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Okay, a little bit of context to the story. In Luke chapter 15, it says tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners were associating with Jesus and he ate with them. Pharisees and teachers come and they're complaining. 
They're grumbling about what Jesus has done. They had this mindset that these were the kind of people that you need not get close to. Sinners, maybe that's just natural. These are the people we consider to be on the outside. They're not following the ways of God. They're not following the rules. They're not living as you ought to live. Tax collectors were people who were hated by pretty much everybody in that society. Because for the Jews at the time of Jesus, the Romans were in charge, and the Romans and the Jews didn't get along. The Romans had taken over, and the Jews were struggling with what it looked like to live under Roman rule. And the Romans, you know, they were Gentiles. They were people who were not Jewish, people who worshipped uh, in a different way, people who worshipped different gods, people who forced them to do things that were against their, their morals, their faith, their convictions. They felt like slaves in their own land. They couldn't freely live even though uh, they were in their land where God was supposed to be blessing them. When the Romans wanted to collect tax from the Jews, smart thing to do, they recruited Jews so that they didn't have to go in because nobody likes paying tax and nobody likes the people who collected tax. The problem was, from a Jewish perspective, those Jews who went to collect taxes uh, were basically traitors. They were working for the Roman government, the Roman Empire, the, the evil people. And they're taking from us. And tax collectors were known to not just take the amount of tax they were supposed to take, but to take even more so that they could pay the government what the government had told them to collect, and they could take the rest. And so these were traitors. These were people who were morally bankrupt. These were people who would sell out their own family, their own kin, their own people from their, their, their own background for money. These are kind of the worst of the worst. And Jesus received them and was eating with them. Now, this doesn't just mean he happened upon them in the cafeteria or somewhere out and he sat down. And what's the big deal? He ate with them. In Jewish, in actually lots of cultures in the world, even still today, uh, eating with someone was not just, a, oh, well, we got to eat. No big deal. We'll eat. But it was a way of communicating to someone else, I approve of you. I accept you. We're friends, and not just friends, but we're, we're deeply connected. I have accepted you as a person. And so uh, what they're complaining about, what they're grumbling about is, here's Jesus who's supposed to be uh, this religious leader. And as religious leaders, we're supposed to be pure people. We're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. We're supposed to stand up and do what's right. And we're supposed to communicate to other people what's right and how they should live right. If you're accepting them, are you not endorsing them? That was their problem. You sit and eat with them. You get right close to them. You're involved in their life. You're saying, I accept you. And what you're communicating in their mind was, if you're accepting them, are you endorsing their lifestyle? Are you endorsing these tax collectors? Are you endorsing the sinners who live these terrible lives in their perspective? There was this uh, way of thinking, comes from their interpretation of the Old Testament, that again, there's this sort of contagiousness to your spirituality that you can uh, communicate, almost like a, a disease, to other people, your purity or your impurity, your worthiness to worship in the temple, in the community, or your unworthiness. And so as Jesus would receive these people and eat with them, they would say, whoa, 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 you cannot do that. Worked a little bit like this. Do you remember uh, when we were in lockdowns? And there was the different phases, and there were some phases where you couldn't go anywhere, and you couldn't be in a group, and everything was closed. And then there were some of those gradual opening times. So there was times where restaurants opened, for example, and you could go to a restaurant, but you had to sign in and you had to put your phone number. And then they separated you out and you could eat and you could go home. But it was possible that they would call you and say, hey, we have you on our list from Thursday. You ate at our restaurant. We found out there was somebody with COVID here. 
And it's possible that they've given you COVID. And you might not have symptoms, but you could have COVID. And therefore, you could be walking around contagious. And you could be giving people COVID. And so, you know, depending on the different time and the recommendations, hey, you need to now quarantine yourself. You need to stay away from people for a certain amount of time. Watch out for the symptoms, all the rest of it. Because there's this contagious thing going around, and you might not even know it, but you are contagious. Well, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, they had this idea of sort of a spiritual version of that, that there's people walking around who are impure, people who are walking around who are sinners, and they could communicate that to you. If you get too close, if you touch them, if you eat with them, you might get their impurity, and then you're no longer pure. You can't go and worship. You don't fit in anymore. One of the examples of this is people with uh, skin diseases. Often in the scriptures, probably uh, talks, refers to a whole wide range of ailments, but talks about leprosy, that you have, these people would have leprosy, and therefore, they were on the outsides, the margins of society. They couldn't go to the temple and worship. Oftentimes, they had to beg because, uh, you know, they, they just had no way to provide for themselves, and they, they were isolated, they were on the fringes, and everybody was scared to go near them because if you touched a leper, even accidentally, that they could communicate their impurity to you, and not just physically their their disease that they have, but even spiritually. In Luke chapter 5, we see that Jesus encounters a leper. Part of the reason he gets grumbled against, he goes to him and he has this conversation and the man wants to be healed and he says, uh, Jesus says to him, do you really want to be healed? This is going to change everything for you. And he says, yes. And then Jesus, who I think we would believe could heal somebody, if he could heal somebody, could heal somebody by doing all sorts of things. He could have just said, you're healed. Jesus has done that in other ways, but instead, Jesus touches the man with leprosy. And do you know what happens? Rather than Jesus getting leprosy, the man is healed. Rather than Jesus uh, becoming sick, the other man becomes healthy. Rather than the, the bad disease going to Jesus, it's the, the good, loving touch of Jesus that restores the man and then he says, now you can go take the sacrifice. You can go to the temple. You can show them that you're pure. You can be, come back into community. People will embrace you again. Instead of his impurity becoming Jesus' impurity, Jesus' cleanness becomes his cleanness. Jesus is turning the tables on the entire way of thinking about being contagious. That it works both ways. That what you guys are so afraid of, that their impurity might become yours. Your cleanness can become theirs. And that's what this story is about that Jesus is going to tell. So uh, I want us to consider a little bit about what our influence can be, what kind of people we can be, what kind of uh, contagiousness we might have, what it is that we might be putting out into the world. So Jesus starts the parable by saying this, they're grumbling and complaining. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. So these are religious leaders who have responsibility to lead this people spiritually and he says in verse 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep is, and has lost one, does not leave the ninety-nine to the open country? Now this is important, just the, the, the first part, because Jesus tells pretty much the same story in the Gospel of Matthew, but he tells it to a different audience. He tells it to his disciples. And in Matthew 18, when he says it, this is how he starts the story. He says, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, do you see the difference there to his disciples? If someone had a hundred sheep and the sheep strayed, the, the sheep went off, that is, it's the responsibility of the sheep. They're the one that got themselves lost. Here, as Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, he said, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one? 
Jesus is now, he's kind of taken up the temperature a little bit. It's not just the sheep is wandering away. It's that this is your sheep, that you're losing sheep. He's now coming after the religious leaders. You're losing your sheep. These are your sheep. You are bad shepherds. The bad shepherd loses a sheep. Hey, aren't you paying attention? What is it that you've done that you've lost your sheep? And then he starts to, to kind of change the conversation. Now, if you've lost a sheep, which you shouldn't have done, but you have done, wouldn't you leave the 99 and go after them? There's a lot of debate about this because some people, especially who have lived in that area and know shepherding, would say, number one, 100 sheep is a lot of sheep for a shepherd. That you might miss one or two if they went missing. It's not like, they actually say most shepherds would have way less sheep you would really notice if you lost a sheep 100, you might lose one, and you might not even notice for quite some time. And then people notice and say, and then wouldn't you go and leave 99 and, and go after the one? And people would say, no, I don't know if I would. I got to keep 99 safe. And so people argue uh, as they interpret this, was there a, an assistant shepherd that was supposed to take care of the 99 and this guy was supposed to go off and they're safe because, you know, my assistant's got them. We don't know. Jesus doesn't mention it. Maybe that's the assumption. Maybe it's not. But Jesus' point is, and it's supposed to be a stark contrast, it's supposed to be a little shocking. Wouldn't you go after the one? I mean, come on, you lost him after all. It is your fault. You are the bad shepherd. Wouldn't a good shepherd, even if that happened, wouldn't they go after the one and leave the rest? And notice what he says in verse 5. And then when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. So the bad shepherd loses his sheep. The good shepherd risks everything to find his sheep. The good shepherd goes to where it's dangerous. It goes to the spot that would be hard. And when you find the sheep, lays it on his shoulders and then rejoices about it. So a sheep, you might ask, well, when he finds the sheep, wouldn't he kind of lead it back? Like sheep can get pretty heavy, 70 pounds, up to 80, 90 pounds even. And a shepherd to carry it would have had to take the sheep, put it on its, his shoulders and kind of grab both of his legs and carry it all back. You say, why wouldn't you just lead the sheep? Hey, come on, sheepy, sheepy, come back to the, the, the fold. But a sheep wouldn't do that because if a sheep was lost, if a sheep was isolated, if the sheep was away from the, the, the rest of the sheep and didn't know where it was, they freeze. They won't move. They might just shiver in fear but there's no bringing them back by their own volition. It is the shepherd who has to take the burden, the shepherd who has to carry the sheep, put it on his shoulders, do everything that's necessary. And we see here as Jesus is talking about what a good shepherd looks like, we see the undertones of what he's willing to do for the people that he's come to find. That he would take their burdens on his shoulders, that he would carry the people that he loves, even if it meant going to a cross, death on a cross, to do whatever it costs to bring the sheep home. And not begrudgingly, amazing, not begrudgingly, it says rejoicing, enjoy. I'm carrying the burden, even though it's hard, even though it's dangerous, even though there's a huge risk to myself. Here's a good shepherd, risks everything to bring back the sheep because the sheep can't do it for himself. Why would you do that? Why would you endure? I was thinking about this because a couple of weeks ago we talked about endurance and how important it is to, to keep going and to persevere even things were hard and that there can be joy in persevering and enduring. Do you know why there's joy in enduring? It's not because it's hard. It's not because it hurts. That's crazy. It's because in the endurance, we, go, we get stronger to do things we couldn't do before. So if you're training for something, you're training for a big race or some kind of athletic thing, 
You don't rejoice because I got to get up in the morning and push my body and it hurts the next day and all my muscles are sore. You rejoice because if I do this over and over and stick with it, one day I'll be able to run further than I could ever run before. I'll be able to run faster than I could ever run before because I'm getting stronger so that I can do what I really want to do. If you play an instrument, you don't rejoice in the, the long hours of practicing, even when it's really hard and you don't feel like doing it. Just because it's hard, you rejoice because if I practice the scales and if I keep doing it, and I learn, and I get better and better and better. One day I'm going to play the songs that I love to hear and I love to be part of, and the music will flow through me. In Hebrews chapter 12, speaking of Jesus and his willingness to go to the cross, he said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, not because he wanted to endure a cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He did it to bring us back into his presence so that one day all people would be reconciled. Just this, this beautiful offer of I will do everything to bring you back to myself. That's what the good shepherd does, risks everything to bring the sheep home, to provide the reunion. Listen to verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So now we come to the communal aspect. It's not just the shepherd working on his own. The shepherd comes back with the sheep, and the, in the community, the community celebrates together. The community is with the shepherd. What's good for the shepherd is good for the entire village. We live in such an individualistic society, but this would have been so true that what's good for you is good for me. If we're in the same family, if we're in the same village, if we live together, you know, it's, it's we're all in this together. You found your sheep, you found your sheep, and we're, we're all rejoicing. We have found joy, and so we should throw a party. Shouldn't we throw a party? Yeah, exactly. We should definitely throw a party. And verse 7 says, just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so here's the joy. The joy is in the reunion. The joy is in the repentance. But that's interesting. So when Jesus tells these stories, they're scandalous stories, they're shocking stories to his original audience. But if you said to the Pharisees and, and the, the scribes, the leaders in the religious, um, the religious system of the time, if you said, God is calling people to repentance, that's not shocking. What are we so happy about? The sheep has repented. But then you read the story and you go, did the sheep repent? I didn't read any repentance of the sheep. The sheep didn't do anything. The shepherd came and got them. What are we talking about? The Pharisees would have had a formula for repentance. Here's how the formula would go. If you want to repent, which you're supposed to do, it should go something like this. Well, you need to confess your sins. You need to make restitution. So if you've stolen from somebody, you've hurt somebody, you need to go and you need to make it right. And then you need to demonstrate your sincerity. You need to find some way to show whoever you've hurt or the community that I'm never going to do this again that I can somehow prove that to you. So interesting. If Jesus just said that to them, they would go, we already know that. We've got a formula for it. The sheep is supposed to confess their lostness <laughs> and sometimes somehow make restitution and demonstrate their sincerity. And yet, none of that, and maybe you say, well, it's because it's a sheep, it's a story. But actually, if you continue reading in Luke chapter 15, 
There's, that's the theme. The next little parable is about a woman who's looking for a coin. The coin is lost, and the coin does nothing except get found. And then we have a story that a lot of us call the prodigal son, where the prodigal son uh, comes to his father, basically says, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. Give me your inheritance. He goes off to a foreign land. He spends all the money. He squanders it. He does all the things you're not supposed to do. He lives a terrible life. And then everybody deserts him because his money is gone. He squandered everything. He's super desperate. And so he does actually work on a bit of a formula to confess. And he goes through it. You can read it in the the last part of chapter 15. Oh, I've sinned against heaven and earth. And he's going to go to his father and repeat this. And and then he's going to ask him. He rehearses this just to be his servant. He's really following the Pharisee's formula here. I'm going to make some kind of restitution. I'm going to hope that my father will just take me in specifically as a servant. I'll ask him if I can be a servant because at least he treats his hired hands well. And maybe I can work off the debt. Maybe I can just provide for myself. He's just... If I go through this formula, I can do it. Maybe my father will get on board. The word repentance in Greek is metanoia, and it means it's kind of two words smushed together. It means to go beyond your current mind. So meta is to go beyond, noia is your mind. So it means uh, to think outside of your current box, to expand your thinking, to go further than you had thought before. What is the kind of repentance here that Jesus is pushing for? I think if he was just saying, confess your sin, make restitution, demonstrate your sincerity, all of which, by the way, I don't think are bad things, are probably a good part of your spiritual life. But if Jesus was just saying that, he wouldn't have to tell this story. They already knew that. And it wouldn't have bothered anybody, and it wouldn't have been that challenging. But Jesus in this story shows that repentance helps us to rethink and to reconnect, that it is the the basis for how, in this story, the sheep and eventually the coin and eventually the, the lost son all get reconnected. And the lost son, by the way, has a counterpart, his older brother, who stands in for that religious grumbling person who, when the father throws a party for his younger son, the older son says, but I've been here working, and you've never thrown a party for me. I've been here doing all the things right. This is the scandalous part. You're throwing a party for him. I'm working, doing everything I'm supposed to do. I never left. I never ran away. I never stole my inheritance. Why is it so scandalous? I think what the repentance is, and listen, confession of sin, like I said, is very important. And these other steps, they're an important part. But I think here's what really is driving it home. Pharisees emphasize how bad people are. Jesus is emphasizing how good God is. Listen, there are people on the outsides. There are people who are isolated. There are people who are hurting. There are people who are considered sinners. A lot of them were in the room. And some of us are here, and even here, we're going, if people knew, people knew it was inside of me. People knew what I did this week. If people in this church, I've got to make sure I don't look like the sinner, because I don't know, maybe I'd be the isolated one. Maybe I'd be the one that doesn't really fit in. Some of us, we feel like frauds even in here because we think that's what our community is all about. And the Pharisees would emphasize how bad you are and you need to go through all these steps to come back. And Jesus is emphasizing how good God is. That God is coming as the good shepherd and he's going to throw you on his shoulders. That the sheep can't do it. But the shepherds showed up. Another way of saying that, you might be trying to find God. Jesus is telling you that he's trying to find you. What do I have to do to find God? Where is God? Is God going to listen to me? Is God going to hear me? 
Does God love me? And Jesus is saying, when a sheep repents, that's when we throw a party. What does a sheep have to rethink? What does the lost one have to rethink? Our sin? Our badness? Yeah, I think so. But even more that, God's goodness. That God is coming for you. That he wants to throw you on his shoulders. That he wants to bring you back into reunion. Bring you back into community. So you might say, I thought God was angry. And now I see that he's compassionate. I thought God was harsh, and now I see that he's forgiving. I thought God was condemning, now that I see he is restorative. That maybe a big part of our repentance has to be about our view of what God is like. For the prodigal son to say, I think my father, maybe he would accept me as a servant, but he's going to require me to work. He's going to require me to earn it. And then to find out that even while he's far off, the father is running towards him and wrapping him up and welcoming him back as a son and throwing a party. He needed to repent of thinking that my father would treat me as an employee. That I have to fight my way back. That it's my responsibility. That if I do the right formula, maybe I'll be accepted again. To repent and say I was lost, but now I'm found. That's all the sheep does is let himself be found. I was rejected, but now I'm accepted. I was unlovable, but now I know I'm loved. I was guilty, and now I know I'm forgiven. I was outside, and now I've been brought inside. I was alone, but now I can enjoy community. And it's because the good shepherd came to find me. It's not because I went out looking for God. It's because God came looking for me. And that's our story. That's how it works. That's the, that's the scandalous part. That's the secret. So how do we pursue joy together? How is it that we pursue joy? Listen, it's easy for us to have a pharisaical view of our community, that we become the gatekeepers, that we focus on what makes us feel good, that we focus on who's already here, that we even kind of put a fence around this is what it means to belong and how you have to live and if you can confess your sins the way that we think you should and you can, you can uh, do the restitution part and make it all right and if you can really show us how bad you feel about yourself then maybe you could be part of our church. Maybe you could really fit in. But I don't think that leads to joy. I think that's going to lead to grumbling and complaining. And we're going to show up and think if things don't look the way I think they should, if people are there that aren't like me, People are there that struggle with things I don't struggle, that we're going to complain, that we're going to wish it was some other way. We turn it into this consumeristic thing that I go on a Sunday morning or I go to a life group and if it, it fits me and makes me feel good, it makes me feel in and we've got this us versus them and in versus out, then you know, everything makes sense. But what if the joy was in joining the mission? What if the joy was realizing that it's me who's lost and you know what I did to get found? I just realized I was found. I just opened my eyes to see the good shepherd came for me. It's my story. It's their story. It's everybody's story. We're just invited to awaken to that beautiful reality. What if what we needed to repent most of, which was our view of God, that he is more loving than we could ever imagine, more accepting than we could ever imagine, more forgiving than we could ever believe. And if it's true for us, it has to be true for everybody else. 
So we're connecting some of these stories, some of these deep truths with some of our core values here at Westside, saying when we're at our best, what are we? Last week, uh, we looked at being locally focused, asking who can we be a neighbor to, who can we love? Today, we go one step further and we say we want to be outward facing. We want to be the kind of church that exists for those people who aren't part of our church yet, church for, for people who uh, don't go to church, people that take that, that beautiful love who have experienced that the Good Shepherd came after me, and then to provide environments to share that for other people. That might be for you as an individual, the people who are in your family, your friends, people that live all around you. As we're locally focused, there's all kinds of people who need to know that love. And what if we realize that we need to be not just facing inward and to say all the things that we do here are for us, those of us who are already here, but actually we need to turn outward Because what if Jesus would tell a story to us and start by saying, who among you, having lost a sheep, because you were so focused on what made you feel comfortable, so focused on the boundaries that made you feel good about yourself, so focused on what other people had to do to earn their way in, if that was true, wouldn't you turn and face outward and run with the good shepherd to go find the one that was lost to share with them their love, God's love? Here's three areas real quick for application that I'd love to take that, that deep truth and to say, if we want to have real joy as a community, we need to turn outwardly and we need to take that love and share it with the world. Number one, your attitude. Uh, we've talked about this. People get grumpy and church people get grumpy. One of the signs we've turned church into an event or something that we consume is that we get grumpy when things don't cater to us. I really hope that you love coming to this church. I hope most of the time you love the music. I hope most of the time you walk away and you say, I got something out of that message that somebody spoke. I hope that you like the coffee. I hope you like the color of their carpet. I do. But if you don't, what if we were fueled not so, by, not so much by all the things that I want, but instead by what would make us effective to people around us? Which leads to the second thing, uh, our attention, our perspective. Wouldn't this be amazing? And I think this would help with the grumpiness and the joy. Not if we showed up and, and paid attention to all the things we don't like. Again, I hope you really like this stuff here. I hope it's really helpful to you. But what if our attention wasn't so much, I didn't like that, I didn't, that wasn't good. But what if we started seeing things, we started paying attention through the eyes of people we wished were part of this community? To come in here and try and take the perspective of someone we love that doesn't like to go to church, that doesn't want to go to church, that's been hurt by church, that thinks church people are hypocrites and judgmental and all the rest of it, and they might have really, really good reasons for it because we've often given them enough of those reasons. But what if we started looking around and saying, you know what I would love to pay attention to? What would it feel like if I wasn't a follower of Jesus, but somebody invited me to come? How do they talk? What does it sound like? What are the messages like? What is the decor like? And all of a sudden, we started paying attention, not so much to what I want, but what would be helpful to sharing the love of God to other people, to help them feel loved and forgiven and welcomed. By the way, I am very grateful because I hear so many times, people after they've been here a while, we say, oh, why did you stick around? You you know, you didn't, you weren't a Christian even, you didn't know, but why did you come here? And how often people say, it's because I never felt as welcomed as I came when I came here. This is because we have people here that are very intentional about that. I'm so grateful. And then the third thing, our attendance. And attendance isn't the best way of saying this, but see how they all start with the same letters? (laughs) So you can remember, attitude and attention. And attendance, by attendance I mean show up. 
to show up for people, to realize that when you show up at church on a Sunday morning, maybe you're not just showing up for you. You wake up and go, ah, I could sleep in today. Oh, we could just go for brunch today. But maybe it's not just you that needs to be here, but you need to be here for somebody else. To show up for the people in your life that will never come to a church or won't come to a church until they're given a good reason, that maybe they're going through difficult things in their life, they're hurting, and your attendance needs to be to show up for them, to bring a meal, to be a listening ear, to, to take their, their kids, to, to relieve them, to, to show up at a funeral, to do whatever it is, to attend in their lives, to show up. And to say, I'd be willing to go to you, not just expecting you to come to us and to show that love. That's kind of God's love. So here's one real practical way. Uh, listen, I hope that this will be something you can take into your life. And again, not just expect everybody to come to church and show up to church, but that this is something we'll do at our workplace and uh, with the people who live near us and, and all the rest of it. But here at Westside, if we have a desire to be outward facing, if we have a desire to create environments that, that people who don't go to church normally would love to come to and would be, would just, you know, it would grab them a little bit and say, man, I'd stick around. I want to hear more about that message. What it requires is for all of us to show up and to pitch in as a family. In a family, we all pitch in. And uh, we're at a place, uh, Mark was saying in our, our announcements, uh, we've seen some, some amazing growth. And some great things are happening. With that growth has come needs, and specifically needs for volunteers, people who say, I want to be part of what's happening here, not just to sit and watch it happen, but I want to help create space for people to find Jesus. I want to be part of sharing with our kids, of which we have so many kids, I want to be part of sharing Jesus' love and teaching at that early age and setting those anchors in their lives. We heard Helen talk about Alpha, which is a great tool coming up where we're going to just, for people who are questioning and wondering, might be a great opportunity for you to think and pray about who you can invite, and maybe not just invite, but actually bring, that you would come with them and help have those discussions and, and, and work through some of those questions that they might have. But to be asking, how can I be part of that? How can I help create a church that people who aren't in church would love to come to? To move towards them. So one way you can do that is to join a team. And we're going to have a slide up behind me. There's a QR code. Even right now, you could go with your phone, uh, get your camera out. It'll send you to the website where you can do our quick survey and sign up. We've been talking about this for a little while. And I just want to encourage you, if you haven't yet taken this step, Westside's a home for you. Uh, this is huge. And this is where we have the chance to turn outward. It's not just about me. And it's not just about those of us who are already here. But how do we share the love of God with people all around us? There's a whole number of places you could uh, partner with us by volunteering. Uh, however you're wired, we have a spot for you. There's a couple places that we really have needs, especially in our youth groups. So our high school students, if you think uh, you might just be great to connect with them and, and care for them, play fun games with them and have great discussions with them, we would welcome you to fill that out and, and check off some in youth. And we are also really looking forward to launching our life groups in October. And uh, we would love it if you either have a home that would really suit hosting uh, a group of 10 or 12 people, a living room that people could meet in. Uh, we're looking for hosts. Uh, and then if, if perhaps you think you might be a great leader to uh, lead in some of the discussions in a group like that, that are mostly based on what we talk about on Sunday mornings, uh, we're looking for life group leaders. And so we would love for you to, to fill that out, check it off. We can follow up with you uh, or uh, come talk to me or Mark. You saw him uh, earlier up here. Uh, and we would love to connect you with those opportunities and find out the best ones for you. Because I think this is where we take that step and say, 
We're not just these passive people sitting in here and we're comfortable that we're in. But we're the kind of people that enjoy, go out, and accept some of the responsibility. God works his love into this world that we would simply partner with him. So we're going to sing one more song, but can you stand with me just as a sign of participation as we pray? And uh, we want to pray for, um, I want to pray for the people in our lives that maybe we know, our friends, our family, our neighbors, coworkers that, uh, that desperately need to know how much God loves to them. And they perhaps need to repent, but perhaps the biggest thing they need to repent of is, is right now, They've been told that God is angry and mean and vengeful and they need to understand that he loves them so much that he'd run towards them. He's running towards them to welcome them in, to connect them with community. And oh, how I long for us to be that kind of community. So our Heavenly Father, today I want to lift up people who live in this neighborhood in Ainsley Wood or Westdale or Dundas or Ancaster on the mountain, students at McMaster University, God, I pray for people who might think that they're unlovable or unacceptable, that they're guilty, that they're far from you, people who feel isolated and hurt and in pain. God, we pray that you would do what we can't do without you, that you would run to them, that you'd throw them on your shoulders. We know that you've taken the burden, all the burden that they need to be reunited. But God, would you wake us up? Would you wake our world up to that kind of love, your love? And would you help us to be the kind of people who would partner with you in doing that? I pray for the people who are on our minds and our hearts right now, people that we love, but maybe are struggling and hurting, people we'd love to be part of even this community, people we'd love to know that they are loved. God, would your beauty overwhelm their mind? Would your love be wrapped around them? Would your gracious gift of acceptance take over their lives? And we pray that over the next coming weeks and months, whether it's through ministries here, or conversations that happen outside of this building, whether it's at Alpha or something else, we pray, God, that we would see people whose eyes would be awakened to the beauty of your love and your grace. All in Jesus' name.